from Kurtco Media. This is Cars That Matter. This is Cars That Matter. I'm here with my good friend and connoisseur of just about everything, Robert Ross. Well, I'm not sure I deserve that, but I am here with some good friends who are connoisseurs of everything, certainly when it comes to automotive design. Ian Cameron and Verena Kluse, thanks for joining us to talk about precisely the subject that this program focuses on, cars that matter. Hi. Hi, Robert. Thank you. Great to have you here. Ian and Verena are recently retired, I say with a great deal of envy, and at present embarking on some new creative challenges with the same fervor that drove them to accomplish so much within the BMW group with whom they both worked most recently. Ian is the former design director of Rolls-Royce Motor Cars, and since 1999 uh, was the visionary behind the rebirth of the brand following its takeover by BMW and the relaunch uh, of uh, the Rolls-Royce Phantom in 2003. Once again, uh, Rolls-Royce became the standard bearer of automotive luxury, something we talk about a lot here, and it could rightfully be called the best car in the world, as was the company's slogan since 1907. Under his leadership, Ian's team designed the Phantom 7, ushering in really a whole new design language that uh, at once was reverential to Rolls-Royce's past, but utterly forward-thinking in so many ways. When you launched in 2003, you launched with a completely new design, a completely new concept, which they came to you in 1999 and told you you're going to be the chief designer for the new Rolls-Royce mark? Yes, it happened somewhat like that, not quite as as logically or smoothly. As, as a project gains momentum, I think, as certainly as BMW realized what they're taken on in terms of time and commitment, having acquired the rights to the brand Rolls-Royce from Volkswagen, this was a date set in stone, not sand, rather like a world football championship or whatever you want to compare it to the olympics we couldn't change the date the date was set when crew would no longer be the home of the production of rolls royce bmw would be responsible and on that date we had to be ready and that tell me about that moment where you found out you were going to be involved in this project what did it feel like who told you about it did you go drink heavily or what happened <laughs> we were already drinking heavily beforehand, but no, the truth is that BMW had put a very special person in charge of the project. This was the, the late Karl Heinz Kalbfell, yeah. mm-hmm. who was a phenomenal character, had been responsible for building up BMW Motorsport, the M brand, into what it was. And he was really someone who understood and got to the roots of a brand and what a brand needed and what, what, what it was about. You know, if he hadn't existed, the project would never have happened. He was really the founding pillar. And very complimentary of Robert to say that I did this, that, and the other. The truth is, when you speak of a piece of music, which to me a design is, you should include the orchestra. It's never just one person. But someone is the conductor. Someone has to hold the baton, for sure. Yeah, but the baton is useless if the people in front of him can't play. So the, was that team already there, or did you have to hand the team? The team was within BMW, but it was, um, it was then sourced from 
all over the world, including uh, design works. Actually, the, the design of the exterior was a design works employee sitting here in sunny California. Probably a good time to introduce Verena. Verena Close was former president of BMW Design Works in Southern California since 2004. So meanwhile, uh, Ian's working uh, between Munich and Goodwood. Verena is uh, industriously running the operation of BMW's design subsidiary in California. DesignWorks is a subsidiary of BMW with studios located in Munich, obviously Los Angeles, and Shanghai. And you set up the studio in Shanghai as well. Is that correct? Definitely. That happened during my tenure. But before we started the tapping into Asia through a studio in Singapore before we moved to Shanghai. Clearly, the Los Angeles operation was uh, instrumental in not only informing the design of some Rolls-Royce products, but a considerable number of other projects as well. That's absolutely right. DesignWorks USA is one of the leading design agencies on this planet and works in the creative field of strategic consulting and uh, works for many, many clients. BMW Group is just... Not just automotive, a variety of... In in the sense of automotive, DesignWorks USA works only for the BMW Group out of confidentiality reasons, but Mm -hmm. in, in the area of truck design... There are many more clients DesignWorks USA is working for. And you did a lot of work in aviation, I understand. We'll talk about that, too. That was one of the industry categories. It was somehow my ambition to grow this field because somehow it felt right to cater to the premium design needs for BMW to work more in the aviation industry. One of the greatest values of DesignWorks, unlike other automotive studios in California, they work with third-party clientele in fields completely outside the automotive, which gives them access, in the case of uh, the aviation experience, to a clientele in a world which is very akin to Rolls-Royce. So that was a huge building block for us to use that to work outside the typical restrictions of an automotive engineering organization in Munich. This was absolutely essential to try and free ourselves from the BMW world and get into the Rolls-Royce world and get acceptance. You know, if you're arguing with engineers on your home turf, you'll hear the same sort of arguments and reasoning being repeated Day after, this is their mantra. If you move outside of that, you can start levering a different point of view. And when actually BMW realized what they had in their hands, and one of the first meetings I do remember in the um, so-called design penthouse in BMW, where all the models and future concepts are presented, they put together some plans, visions, strategies, typical sort of processes and teams that would be involved to try and speculate, understand what was necessary. And this was under the guidance of Wolfgang Reitzler, who was still in-house. And we called in people from Rover, who was part of the group at that time. It was very important to have the British content, the British understanding. We obviously had people from Design Works and obviously people from Munich. An interesting international Absolutely. Uh, melding of German build quality. Yes. You were building a factory in Goodwood outside of London. We drew people from all the studios, Rover, Design Works, Munich, 
and then set them up in a very secret undercover skunk works type of studio in Ooh, that sounds like a good movie. In London. But before that, we had this meeting in the penthouse. Everything was laid out, schedules, processes laid out, and people just said, yeah, we'll have to do this, have to do this, have to have this, these people. And in came Wrightsley and looked at it all. He said, this is a joke, isn't it? We're not doing it like this. It has to be done here, there, and everywhere, but not here and not with these processes. And, and of course, everybody in a hierarchical organization nodded and said, yes, of course. But he set the ball rolling to make it clear this would not be done under the normal auspices of a BMW design and engineering. Would it be safe to say that Rolls-Royce really did operate much like an independent mark as it had done before its acquisition by BMW? Absolutely. It absolutely had to because they didn't have the resources to do anything else. It's fair to say that at that time, things have changed in the meantime. First of all, BMW already had experience in producing, delivering a non-BMW product in the Range Rover which they'd realized you couldn't do a, for want of a better description, some of Ford's brands, they simply are rebodied Fords. This was not going to be the case. They very quickly understood it had to be done differently, but this is not to say that, they, that dates could be moved or there was endless resource. The fact is you couldn't, within an organization like BMW, just to put make things clear, it could not be the case that the most expensive product would be run under subventions from the other cheaper models, the BMWs. You know, they had to pay for themselves. A complete new mm -hmm. piece of paper. Complete new piece of paper. Um, With black ink and not red. Exactly. No red ink. <laughs> no red ink. Can we talk about this at all? The fairly remarkable story of Volkswagen buying the Rolls-Royce Bentley company and then being somewhat surprised that the Rolls-Royce mark was... Slipped away. Uh, I guess that's a nice way to put it. It, 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 uh, it actually turned out to have been licensed to the company that they acquired, and BMW, talk about right place, right time, and right pocket, then acquired that mark for the use in automotive So at the time, uh, the, the BMW CEO at the time was Pichetrier, who was a great fan of certain British brands. He's, a, I think, a distant cousin to Alec Isigonis, the famous engineer, BMC engineer, mini engineer, and he was very keen on acquiring Rolls-Royce. BMW already supplied Rolls-Royce with a lot of componentry for their cars, airbags, engines, etc. And, of course, BMW had an aero engine business going with Rolls-Royce. All this appeared not to matter to Volkswagen, and they didn't realize to what extent Rolls-Royce and Vickers were somewhat in bed together. So at the last minute, which rarely happens... Mr. No, this is a great the late Mr. Pierre business was, school story. Was, um, you know, had the rug pulled out from under his feet. Did some lawyers end up in trouble for this? I I don't know. I'm sure there are a lot of red faces, but uh, in any case, you could say he got sweet revenge later because he hired Pichard three to later and fired him. So ah, there's, there's okay. uh, um, more or less. I mean, it's a pity because they're all brilliant, brilliant men, brilliant, brilliant people who. Sadly to say, the industry is lacking this day, I think. We're going to take 15 seconds, and we'll be right back. On a short list of every uh, watch enthusiast's list would have to be the Tag Heuer Monaco. It's the most iconic automotive connection that a person can have with a wristwatch. For me, it's uh, the icon of motorsports uh, timekeeping. 
Let's hop back into the car that you introduced in 2003. Robert and I were involved in the relaunch here in the U.S. I remember that uh, well. With a buddy of yours, Jim Selwa, that we, yes. all, we all miss. Yeah. Probably one of the greatest uh, marketers and uh, salespeople any of us have ever met. Well, Jim is quite a character and... Certainly, what we needed to kickstart things on this side of the of the of the ocean. He was very elemental in certain initiatives, but the the fact was that time was running. The project was, I wouldn't say stalling, but you could tell that the initial start is always difficult. And we simply had to get information, learn, dig ourselves into what Rolls Royce was all about. And the truth is, we did not know. We could not possibly know. But again, fortunately, we had Kalbfeld who was backing us and who understood what was necessary. A lot of resistance from traditional Rolls-Royce owners, enthusiast clubs. And one of the first things that Kalbfeld did was he his summer holiday after the acquisition was spent touring the UK in a Seraph. That yeah. was the one with the BMW yeah. uh, engine. And, and what was the last year of a Seraph? Last year, the Seraph was... 2003? 2003. Yeah. So it was handed over to us. Simultaneous. I remember we, uh, I remember Rolls-Royce prior to the takeover had the reps out here had ceremoniously delivered the last Corniche convertible to uh, our offices at Rob Report, and I Mm -hmm. had the pleasure of driving that big boat for about a week. (laughs) It was a beautiful dark blue thing with gorgeous tan interior. Sure, and, uh, but with switches that went click. Well, and... not only did they do that, uh, I remember that it was parked in my driveway and I was in the midst of raising the roof and it literally froze solid like a dinosaur fossil in fully <laughs> erect condition. So that this roof sticking up fully, probably 10 feet up into the air, was paralyzed and wouldn't work. It wouldn't go up. It wouldn't go down. It was sticking straight up in the air. And uh, it was, of course, a Sunday, and I I was panicked because I thought, well, this is a great way to have everyone in the neighborhood make fun of me. And I was able to... Just having the car in your driveway was enough. (laughs) Well, and with the the roof sticking straight up, that was something great. I finally got a hold of an engineer, and he told me that with the use of a very small Allen wrench, I could lay on my back, crawl all the way into the trunk on my back, and crank the little emergency mechanism mechanism about 3,000 times in the roof a would true, lower a itself. true authentic Rolls-Royce It experience. was a true authentic Rolls-Royce. Yeah. But what a magnificent car. It sort of drove like a 76 Chevrolet Caprice, but it was <laughs> magnificent as any $400,000 car should you be. You knew you were driving a heavy car, which leads us to the car that you introduced in 2003, the Phantom 7 which 5,500 pounds, 6,000 pounds? Well, the Phantom being a aluminum space frame structure was certainly compared to previous models, incredibly light, yeah. incredibly stiff. I think it was one of the stiffest platforms that BM, even BMW had produced. Certainly and, a stiff upper lip. Which is not to say that we had surprises in the development. The first running prototype we had, for example, that Kalbfeld uh, took out and came back with a red face. He said, well, are you guys joking? It just drives like a 3-series like an M3. It's not what we want. This is a Rolls Royce. And these are the sort of things, the, the mindset you have to get over <laughs> in a company like that. And I say it's always like a blind person will know how to move themselves around their apartment where they live. Everything is in a place where they know exactly where it is. When you start a project like Rolls Royce, you have to move everything into a different position and let people get used to where that is. Otherwise, you will not achieve this break. And this is what slowly 
started to take place and happen. But initially, it was, you know, we were, we were not getting there. Just for a minute, because this was a truly unique feeling. The dial in the center console with the gear shift, as it, as it may. Well, that was that uh, blasted eye drive at the time. Which, yes, it was, which we it was simplified the, and had to carry over. But simplification was the key, because I remember yes. Sel- Selwa telling me, my customers are 80 years old and they're not going to understand how to use this eye drive. To be fair, honest, we were less worried about the 80-year-old customers and more worried about the 40-year-old future customers, because that's what we had to achieve. That's right. Um, were you designing for the customer experience, the buying emotion, or were you designing basically to impress yourselves? We certainly weren't trying to impress ourselves. I think we were trying to find our feet. We always had, the. I think we had huge respect for the past, what Rolls-Royce stood for. And you could only actually fail if you succeeded then you might just, just, just succeed. So that was something that was absolutely never out of our minds. But you gave us, as customers, you gave us so much, I'm sorry, but there's a technical term I have to use, cool shit to show our friends. That's Um, nice to hear. For example, both front doors, you designed in an umbrella that you kept in the door, a carbon fiber handle. Yes, the doors uh, were ventilated. T- so tell me about what, what was behind that, because I can't remember other cars being designed with umbrellas in the door. Well, behind that was the British climate. But it's one of those things that sticks in people's minds. It's one of the stories that people like to tell, like the um, non-revolving Rolls-Royce emblem on the wheels. Meaning that when you look at the wheels, the Rolls-Royce emblem you is, can always read it. is always perfectly upright Yes, and lived in, what, ball bearings or what was that system? It was a counterweight, that? counterweight that just kept it vertical. It, it, it was a, a remarkable looking thing for but those of us. But it was really us. a narrative for the whole Rolls-Royce driving experience, that wafting. It made the car yes. almost look as if it wasn't trying to work hard at all. The effortlessness. One of the other remarkable things that I'd love to know whose idea was this. Nobody owned a Rolls-Royce Phantom and didn't take their friends to a closed and locked car and ask them to try to steal the flying the, uh, the flying lady. The flying lady in the front. What a cool experience that was, and you could really find out whether or not your friend was cool enough to handle the reaction. For those of you who don't know, if you tried to grab the flying lady in the front of the Rolls it Royce, disappears. it was spring-loaded and disappeared with a very loud and sudden clunk, which usually got your friends to jump back three or four feet. With a little trap door that covered her up and you'd never see her again. <laughs> There's another interesting story to that, that um, when we took over the Spirit of Ecstasy, the mascot that's on the front of the car, over time the molds had had deteriorated and got worn out. So we re-engineered them and brought back all the detail. But because of the way, and the height is limited, by the way, by legislation and visibility lines, it cannot be bigger. Because they were larger historically. They used to be larger. Um, And This is as large as it can be, and I don't know if in the future they will stay like that. But because of the mechanism, we had to retract it in the way it does. An earlier spirit of ecstasy, looking at it from the front, it's actually slightly asymmetric, that one wing is a bit higher than the other. And on the Goodwood ones, it's the other one, because that gives it the clearance to go down but nobody will see that. Brilliant. Rolls-Royce vehicles come with so many surprising creative touches, features, and flourishes. We could discuss them for hours, but Bill focused in on why those features were actually important. One of the things that you did at the time, you kind of redefined 
the bespoke moment that your customers could have? Because you had a whole laundry list of the different choices that your customer could make and really feel like they had a hand in the design of the car. Which was absolutely true. I think we've always said that virtually no Rolls-Royce is identical to the other one. And the bespoke customer, the bespoke market has just blossomed since then. Uh, At the time, around 2003, was still fairly rare. In the meantime, I would say almost every car that comes off the production line in, in Goodwood is a bespoke. And this is exactly what the clientele wants. They want to have their car. It's certainly an opportunity lost not to take advantage of the fact that you could actually create a car to your specification. The whole notion of going in and buying a car off the rack, like buying a shirt off the rack, is is almost anathema, it would seem to me, if you're in a position to uh, buy a car like a Rolls-Royce. Yes, and interestingly, talking about a clothes rack, we introduced the idea of a dress code to identify each model, the Phantom Limousine being the first one. Do tell, explain this a little more. Um, if you're trying to separate just with numbers and performance and weights, etc., that doesn't always make a lot of sense to the people you're trying to get money from to back the project, even the board. If you start presenting it as a dress code and you show people in a smoking, in a sports jacket, in a business suit, you start to understand where the product's aimed at. And in terms of Rolls-Royce, this was extremely important. The first time it's been used within a design project in BMW was a process that we call phase zero. And phase zero was something that had been in use in design works in dealing with non-automotive customers, how they define and start to create a context, a basis for a project. It's something that's used more widely, I think, in architecture. Phase zero is a process step, basically, before you dive deep into the project to develop for the team and all the stakeholders a deeper understanding what the project actually, what kind of challenges the project has. Not the project by itself, but what challenges are existing for the future service you want to design or for the future car you want to design or for the future consumer product. And this gave you a better sense of what you should design going forward? Yeah, basically it's simply spoken, you have to figure out what kind of questions we need to ask to find the right answers to come up with a better enhanced consumer experience at the end. Ian, you must have had to functionally inspire the people that you had on your team to accomplish the kind of designs that you came out with in 2003. Now, certainly a big stepping stone in achieving that was having people from very different backgrounds. We could draw people from Design Works, the Rover Studios, Land Rover Studios in the UK, bring them together for this experience in the London studio and simply look under every stone possible that had something to do with Rolls-Royce and its past, as much to understand mistakes as successes. Well, without getting you to do a forensic analysis on your Phantom design, can you briefly explain how it does indeed relate to or creatively pay respects to uh, its predecessors in terms of proportions and and uh, the gestalt of the of the form? The gestalt, we don't use that term in Rolls-Royce. But, uh, <laughs> I should par- pardon me yeah. there. No, no, you... I, I, I will relate this. Let, let's say that the light first shone on our marble heads when we paid a visit to the world-renowned Rolls-Royce restorers P&A Wood down in the south of England. They had recently had a Spitfire as an aircraft. Not the little Triumph. Not the little Triumph, because they, they rebuilt Spitfire engines as well, and they had one yeah. in their showroom. They had a Spitfire in their showroom. It's the size of a king-size bed. It is, and we very cautiously um, contacted them, asked them if we could come down and have a visit, see what they did. 
that is quite literally where I think the, the learning curve came on course and we started to understand what Rolls-Royce was about. And it was, it was just tremendous. It was like a switching on a light switch. After all that Rolls-Royce conversation, we're going to come back and talk about design works in Southern California and some of the work that Verena did when she was at the helm. Sometimes the exceptional is not the biggest budget. Sometimes the exceptional is someone's ability to actually take their soul and print it on the screen for a moment. I want to learn everything that there is to know about the filmmaking process. I think part of art is hearing from the artists who create it. And the number of different visions, the number of different qualifications that have to go into making any film is insurmountable. And hearing those stories can be just as exciting and insightful as the movies themselves. Certain movies or certain scores, certain actors, have shaped who I am as a person. I have such appreciation for the things that people produce and the work that goes into it. Whether it's the writer who came up with the story in general or how the filmmakers were able to take that from the page and put it onto screen and then from the actors themselves who were able to kind of bring that all to life. All of it is what I want to hear because it makes me love my favorite movies even more. I'm Scott Talal. If you love movies like I do, you're going to love Hollywood Unscripted. Wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Verena, as former president of BMW Design Works and having filled that role for some time, I think you started in 2004. That was quite a tenure, and you did a lot of important things when you were there. What would you call Design Works? How would you yeah, characterize that's an interesting design works? Question. Overall, I would call it it's a strategic design consultancy working or producing creative intelligence, really in the field of creative concepts and conceptual design. But it's not limited to the work for BMW. BMW Group had acquired Design Works 25 years ago. But the charming thing of that studio or the company, it's actually a company of about 115 people in three locations, headquartered in Newberry Park, Los Angeles Studio, and Shanghai Studio, and Munich. So, but Design Works, the charming aspect is working across the industry, working for outside BMW clients. And why is that? To help other customers, other clients to find a better position in their marketplace through creative consulting. If, for instance, I'm a manufacturer of consumer products and I want to create the next great all-in-one exercise machine, I might engage DesignWorks to uh, undertake a project like that, provided I had the resources to afford them. Or conversely, if I were a, an equipment manufacturer, say heavy equipment, I wanted to build a new backhoe, I might come to you to explore how something like that might be done. Even if I were, say, the mothership BMW, come to you because I want to explore the next generation of electric vehicle, I might come to you too because you're thinking out of the box. Is that fair? Yeah, definitely. And out of the box is just one out of the box, three words. But it means a lot. When you work in your, let's say, mothership home studio, I don't want to say you get stuck, but you have to, when you want to develop an understanding of the future or what your customers in the next five or ten years desire or would like to have in their cars, you, at least you have to look out of the window and go beyond your daily work and have to observe what is out there, what is going to change and to anticipate what kind of impact it might have. But when I say out-of-the-box design works, it's actually lift the work into the future on a daily basis. Maybe shorter term for consumer industry or fast-moving consumer goods or very long-term lead time for the aircraft industry where you maybe 
work 10 years ahead, 20 years ahead, or even 30 years ahead. So these are really uh, long-range visions. You have to put on a couple of pairs of glasses. You go to work, you put on the short-range glasses. You go to work, you also put on the long-range glasses that look into a crystal ball that might, as you say, talk decades in the future. I know that uh, in automotive design, it's a little shorter time frame these days, but clearly when you were talking about, say, developing electric vehicles, that was a longer game plan. You and I have also talked about designing context. Can you address that? What does that really mean? It's a term which had been heavily used or is of great importance in the architecture. When you plan a new building site, let's say in Manhattan, and you start designing the new building, which hopefully is a new landmark, you have to consider what's, what is around it and how long will that environment last around this new building. And then when you take this term to consumer landscape, you want to have an understanding. What is the landscape maybe in 10 years ahead? In in particular with the whole digital transformation we are going through, um, what is the consumer doing in these days, maybe 10 years ahead? How is the, how is the consumer or the future BMW driver spending the time during a day? How much time will he sit in the car? How much time will he use the car? So it really goes beyond the product you're designing and considering the lifestyle and the physical surroundings and the social underpinnings of a product and how it's going to live in a society. Plus, as a designer, we should anticipate what is a good solution for our future consumers and for our future clients to basically give them a better world, not to make the world or their daily life more complicated through more products. Sometimes designing means also cutting off products, Mm -hmm. just improve the service or simplify a product because we want that people live longer, live better, live fairer. Talking about anticipation, time, the aspect of time, element of time in Designing and developing new concepts, products, is of essence. And actually today's processes tend to eliminate time, which is a disaster. When you have an agency like DesignWorks detached from Mothership, there's a chance to win more time because they have a different take on things. They aren't under quite the same pressures. And the fact that they use this thing, this phase zero, this contextually driven phase of a project which did not exist within Munich for a new product, like the Rolls-Royce, was absolutely essential. That that was a a learning curve. We were exposed to things that we had never dreamt of, and you can very easily become used to paradise. In certain design challenges, living in California gives you opportunities that don't exist anywhere else. That's one of the reasons this design works is where it is. And one of them, for example, is light and color. And if you don't go to the lengths of examining what happens and what sort of materials you can use in this environment, you're ignoring an ace in your sleeve. Big market for a lot of these products here huge, in Southern California. But basically what you what you are mentioning here is you're diving deeper into why California. And California is still a very inspirational place for designers, creative people and new technology, as we know. Why is this? It's easier to disruptive products because society is much more forgiving. It's much more more open. And maybe it has to do with the climate because it's an sometimes an easier life here. In California, I'm just curious, did you guys operate in a vacuum or did you do a lot of consumer testing when you were developing? 
both mentally a vacuum and mentally detached, but consumer testing that you're on site here. You just see things and you have access to opportunities, so, to assessment that don't exist anywhere else. Consumer testing can be done in various facets. A designer naturally observes his neighbor at a table in a restaurant or uh, when you go shopping, you see what people, how they behave at the cashier and so on. So that is a, is a different aspect of consumer testing because you have to take this into account in your new product development. Then you can do this, let's say, algorithm-driven consumer testing where you want to create some data material, which is definitely helpful, but that is mostly done with the help of consumer testing groups or marketing groups, but not necessarily alone by designers. Or let me describe it this way. The consumer testing is quality-driven, bringing facts like... Maybe even just to see if your user interface is working. If you're designing yeah, a toaster, it is can more, they operate it? It is more like taking into account what is the emotional quality of the product or of the product interaction? Is the person happy with that or is he struggling? Does it take too long? Where do we need to Im improve this whole process? A lot of things happened at DesignWorks that certainly were forward-thinking and getting back to the whole notion of electric transportation, you were instrumental in spearheading some very, very important designs that subsequently came to market. Now, of course, electric cars are all the talk of the town, but back when the i3 and subsequently the development of the BMW i8 came around, those were really revolutionary things. Can you talk about how those happened? Yeah, a long time ago, BMW also used design works to kick off the project here in California because mobility is so essential to everybody who lives in Southern California. No one here can live without a car. Mass transportation is still somehow not so well developed, I would like to say. So that was very nice of you. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, people depend on car and if you see the limit of our fossil energies and so on, so it's a, it's the right place to develop the new types of mobility here in Southern California, at least to kick it off. And that's what we have done many, many years ago. And it was not me, it was a team effort to start the Project IOF before it went back into the mothership in Germany. The i8 is without a doubt, Robert, I think you'd agree, the sexiest hybrid car on the market. Well, it's a beautiful thing. I remember joining the BMW team for the initial launch of that car and driving them from Santa Monica up through the hills, and it was quite a head-turner and also a, a very gratifying car to drive and really truly looked like a spaceship that had come from another planet. Quite a thing, and still turns my head when I see one on the road. The i3 was a remarkable little thing and probably never really got its due. I suspect in large part because it's a more expensive automobile than one imagines a so-called transportation pod to be, but a beautifully wrought thing, as it turned out. Are you involved in some new electric or hybrid-style cars going forward? Yeah, in my consulting business, what I'm doing now since I have retired from the corporate industry yeah. because I wanted to spend some more time in my life to work completely independently and really bring to the table my very personal point of view, not framed by being branded, so to speak, and being very politically correct. Yes, of course, I'm involved in some of the newer developments for other companies, and that's a very charming aspect. I also, what was a very interesting enterprise or adventure in my life, I worked for a few years for an Indian car company for Tata Motors, so remotely from Germany and then traveling into India. 
And that gave me another time, uh, much more learning how to drive future development forwards and to work with teams who live in a completely different context. And I'm curious, does your group or has your group worked with any of these companies that are introducing the scooters and the bicycles here in California that you basically just pass your iPhone over a... I don't know what DesignWorks in the moment is working on, but in the past, during the Project I, which had taken place, I would say, nearly 10 10 mm -hmm. years ago, yeah. more than 10 years ago, there was always a dream or the vision of seamless mobility. And seamless mobility also included a seamless information flow of all the devices you, you have with you, and then a seamless mobility. And the scooter had a very important aspect in the whole mobility setup, let's say, for the last mile. You, you are driven maybe autonomously or with your electric vehicle or hybrid vehicle, and then to get home, you used your scooter. So very early on, it was part of the conversation and the development. Interesting. And the part of the development as you go forward with design projects, you have to take into account how the consumer treats some of the products that you're designing. Sometimes these things have to be like a tank to withstand the kind of consumer interaction that they're likely to get. Does, is that a big part of how you look at things? Yeah, right from the beginning. We always did and do very in-depth studies how a consumer is treating and living with the product, how actually how the 24-7 lifestyle is. And then we see and take into account what is necessary, what are the requirements, what is the product brief, then in also the development of sturdiness, durability, sustainability, Does usability. that sometimes fight the design that you would like a product to have? Of course. But then you try to find a way and balancing all these factors out. And usually the team and the team leader has a vision what is hopefully good for the consumer. And when it's good for the consumer, it's then also good for the client you're consulting to. Thank you to Ian Cameron and Marina Clues for joining us on Cars That Matter to talk about their time directing the design at Rolls-Royce and DesignWorks. Come back next week where they join us to talk about the current direction of automotive design, look back on its history, and talk about the future of Cars That Matter. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross and Bill Curtis. Produced by Chris Porter. Sound engineering by Michael Kennedy. Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Recorded at Kirkco's Malibu Podcast Studios. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Today's guests were Ian Cameron and Verena Clouse. Tune in to Cars That Matter wherever you rev up your podcasts. I'm Robert Ross. Thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media. For your mind.